At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. Today I am speaking with Professor Matt Johnson from John Hopkins University in Baltimore, the USA. And Matt is a psychologist. He's just been promoted, which is a great news for him, great news for the discipline of psychedelics, which he's been pioneering researcher in for many years. So welcome, Matt. And uh, again, congratulations on your promotion. Thank you so much, David. Yeah, it's a, a pleasure and an honor to do this with you. And, and thanks for the congrats. So uh, yeah, good to, so good to be speaking to you after I haven't really talked for about a year or so, have we? So everyone knows you as the... Um, the man that started doing psychedelics for addiction uh, through your smoking cessation study. But, but before we get to that, I want you to tell us why you, know, you, why you got into psychedelics. Give us a bit of your background. You know, where did you graduate and how did your career get you into psychedelics? Yeah, so um, briefly, I started out in college in engineering and oh. I uh, became a little bit disillusioned um, about a year into the process and kind of had an early midlife crisis during that took a couple years off during that time I um, kind of got the world to know the world a little more and um, you know part of that was understanding uh, the culture and history of of drugs including psychedelic drugs in particular then I got back into into school and I did the crazy thing that jumped into a psychology program and everyone said I must have a problem with uh you know, not wanting any money, jumping from engineering to psychology, <laughs> you know, so, and I was just kind of broadly interested, you know, in the mind, these kind of mm-hmm. vague, you know, I wanted to do something that was a little more meaningful in terms of humanity. And I discovered the, essentially a, a naturalistic science of behavior. So I got heavily involved with Skinnerian operant, you know, and Pavlovian behavioral psychology. And so that was my base. And then I got it as an undergraduate, got exposed to some, some drug research in rodents, um, looking at actually some of the early work in cocaine immunization. This was in the late nineties in the grand Oregon, right. in the Northwest of the United States. And so, um, very small school, but was lucky to have the only two full-time professors in that psychology department were behavioral psychologists, and um, at least one of which had a very strong interest in drugs and drug effects. So mm-hmm. I got introduced in the drug world, um, drug research world, early on, and you know it was always in my vision that like if you're interested in drugs and behavior, and all of them fascinated me. Like how could any of these compounds, from caffeine to alcohol mm-hmm. to mm-hmm you know, amphetamines, any, you know, how can they have such effects on behavior? If you're interested in drugs and behavior, which I passionately was, either you've got to be fascinated with psychedelics 
or you don't know much about psychedelics. So I, mm-hmm. I had envisioned myself, like, even if it took you know 30 years to establish myself before I could get into it, like psychedelics were in my sights, you know, given the, just the claims of the, the, the older history, mm. science with psychedelics in the you know, 50s through early 70s, and just from the countless anecdotes in, in our culture and the, the apparent, you know, observational data on the impact that, mm. that, that these experiences have had on people. So did you go to John Hopkins to join Groveland Griffiths then? Yeah, but you know, it's interesting because he had just started his very first study with psilocybin and it was, it was top secret material. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so years before I came there, in fact, you know, I came there as a postdoc and when I was interviewing as a graduate student over four years before that, the person who became my graduate mentor, uh, Warren Bickle said, if you come, you do well with me. You know, the path is you're, if you come here and do well, I'm going to send you to, to Hopkins, the behavioral pharmacology research unit where Roland has been at for, for decades. And that's the path. He said, that's where I did my postdoc. If you're in human behavioral pharmacology in the U.S., this is the path to go. Mm-hmm. So I, I followed the path. And so I had no clue that Roland, I, we had met at meetings like the College on Problems of Drug Dependence and had nerded out talking about caffeine and, and other drugs including self-experiments, like weaning ourselves off and kind of testing the limits of withdrawal and and, Mm. and whatnot. And then when I was on my postdoc interview, he said, Matt, can you hold a secret? (laughs) And I said, sure. He says, I'm doing this work with high doses of psilocybin. And it was just sort of one of those moments like, you know, okay, here's the moment I thought I was going to fight for to come 30 years from now. And here it is right now, Mm. right after I got my PhD. So I was like, Please let me uh, have some involvement at, at whatever level of any of this work. I'll run as many other studies as you want, as many cocaine studies and caffeine studies as you want to prove myself. And so I, j- I just jumped in as fully as I could. Roland has obviously um, come from, or at least in his interview with me, he said he got into this through meditation. And he was you know, interested in the altered states of consciousness and the, the different way people reflect on themselves under meditation versus psychedelics. But your research has been, at least initially, on addiction, and that seems an extremely long way from meditation. So can you tell us a bit more about why you decided to do these experiments? Yeah, so it it, kind of comes to down to some of that history I described. I mean, I'm a I'm a behaviorist at heart. And and I'm absolutely fascinated with these constructs, like the the subjective effects, the the mystical experience, the idea that someone would say, describe you know feeling at one with all of humanity and all of the universe. People say different things, but under the ideal you know circumstances, people say extraordinary things. And then even further, people will say that a year later, and this is what some of our early work at Hopkins showed it, like you know. Over a year later, the young people will say, I feel different now. I'm different in these ways. But as interested, interested as I am in that, I want to really see the, the rubber. Where does the rubber meet the road? Let's, let's find a behavior that is verifiable, that's quantifiable. And I can't think of anything better than addiction, which mm-hmm. is a, an area that I had been working in for actually since undergraduate. And particularly, you know, I went with smoking cessation because kind of this early signal with psychedelic research suggesting, you know, across both alcohol and just a little bit of research with opioids, with heroin, Mm -hmm. that there might be this cross 
you know, substance signal for addiction. So I thought, let's test the boundaries. I had had some substantial research from my graduate work with tobacco and nicotine. So I thought, you know, let's do that. I mean, still the standard only recently has the alcohol field moved to, you know, you can put one of these you know, prisoner bracelets on and, 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 and analyze kind of real time alcohol levels. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. very difficult, kind of still the standard for many studies is just self-report. Um, and you could do hair analyses, but the temporal resolution of that is horrible. Smoking, there's multiple ways to, through breath samples and yeah. through urine samples to, someone tells you they haven't been smoking. Great. I believe them, but it's trust, but verify. It's like, have that consistent with multiple biological metrics. You show a reduction at substantial time points, like six months in a year or, or even later. And kind of now we're talking. So, so you decided to study smoking. What did you set up a clinic, or did you go and find a clinic? And I mean, it's not a trivial thing to do to set up a psilocybin study. I know I've, I've spent years trying to do it. Yeah. Well, we had already, a, a, you know, established a basic model with the healthy normal research, so people mm-hmm. without disorders. So the initial study that Roland ran, and then the very, you know, the second and the third follow-ups that I was a a big part of designing Mm -hmm, and and mm -hmm. setting up and running. So we were essentially using the clinical model that goes back to the mid-1950s, so-called psychedelic therapy of, of, uh, you know, high dose, preparing them for the experience, having them lay down, introspect, basically, Mm. wear eye shades and listen to music that's, that's pre, you know, selected. And so that's the psychedelic therapy model, which we ran with in that early research. And I stuck with that following the guidelines of the research using LSD another psychedelic to treat alcoholism. And so I went with that. And another reason I didn't mention that I went with smoking as a target, tobacco smoking as a target, is that really the most prominent psychotherapeutic therapy used to treat smoking is cognitive behavioral therapy. It's the backbone of most basic government mm-hmm. or state-sponsored quit websites and associations like the American Cancer Society or anything like that. And kind of some bread and butter stuff that we know works better than doing nothing. You know, a lot of research on it. And importantly, it's not a method where you have to be uh, highly trained as a clinician. In fact, most academic research using CBT, it's undergraduates Mm-hmm. by CBT, mm-hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy. It's undergraduates who have been trained in it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a psychologist, but an experimental psychologist. I'm not a trained clinician. I'm not a licensed clinician. So I thought, aha, here's something even I could do <laughs> on a shoestring budget because I'm going to be the yeah. the primary guide or playing therapist in the sessions. It was something that I, I pulled together, kind of standard cognitive behavioral therapy, a few eclectic elements, mainly CBT, and just combine that with our standard approach for giving psilocybin. And to be clear, the, the therapy, the cognitive behavioral therapy is, is for the preparation, uh, you know, the non-drug sessions, the non-psilocybin sessions. And then sessions afterwards, the drug session with psilocybin is the same model as the other research. Like it's not talk therapy. It's, you know, mm-hmm. if you're a therapist or a guide, it's shut your mouth, mm-hmm. prepare the person. But when it's happening... Let whatever's happening unfold and be there for support if the person gets anxious. And so that's the basic model. But I'm just thinking if I was sitting as the chair of an ethical committee and you're bringing to me what I would consider a habit disorder or even a choice disorder of smoking, why would I want to support you giving someone a psychedelic when all they're doing is just, just like biting their nails? I mean, 
what was what was your thinking behind it? That's what fascinates me because it is, it does seem. I mean, you can see with depression. Well, you know, people are thinking wrongly, but no one's thinking wrongly. I mean, smoking's a habit. There's no thinking in it, is there? Yeah. I would agree with that basic characterization, but I would also say that's um, you could describe any drug addiction that way. I think it's all a habit, and that's not to dismiss mm-hmm. no, no, no. how life-threatening and, and how difficult it can be. But it's all I, – I see addiction as just an extreme variant of normal processes. We're talking about reward, you know, reinforcement, and interaction with the organism and the environment, and engaging with this one particular stimulus – has run off the charts at the expense of more meaningful, longer-term, more valuable rewards in the environment. And so, you know, I I think uh, the other kind of rationale uh, is that nothing we have works very well. I mean, the best medications, the majority of people have relapsed you know, in even six months, mm-hmm. you know, so Chantix of Rinoclin, the, mm-hmm. the, the best medication we have for smoking cessation, it fails for most people long-term. Now it works better than placebo. And the same thing is true for substitute uh, treatment, agonist treatment, mm-hmm. form of nicotine mm-hmm. replacement, gum patch, lozenge, um, works better than placebo, but you might be talking about in any given study, like 15% success versus 7% success. Okay, I'll take the 15 versus the 7. <laughs> but the big story is, look, look at the room for improvement. I mean, it's success rates in an absolute sense are abysmal. And, and I think the reason that it could work in a big picture, the reason that it, it seems to be working so far, is that unlike other addiction medications for tobacco or other drugs, this really touches the, the heart of what addiction really is. It's not just hitting at the surface level of withdrawal or craving or reinforcement. It's about this person's life. Yeah, well, let's we'll come, back to that, come back to that in a minute because I think that's a really, really important concept. But you're sitting in front of the ethics... I mean, when I sat in front of the ethics committee to do our first psilocybin in depression study, they dragged me back three times. They told me it wouldn't work. They told me it would kill people. It was too dangerous. And, and and I could argue, well, A, I'm a psychiatrist, and B, you know, depression is a sort of a thinking. But you had to sit in front of an ethics committee and say, I'm going to give these people who are addicted to one drug another class, a Schedule One drug. How, was it easy? Or hard? I mean, you obviously achieved your ethical approvals, but how hard was it? It was hard. It, it likely was not as hard as it would have been had we not done the initial work with healthy normals. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. show, you know, and as part of that, you know, we had to make the strong argument, okay, here are the known risks. A lot of the, the risk you can get with drugs, like you take too much of it in the wrong situation. Like here, here's what can happen with psychedelics. It's not all good. Mm. But a very important thing, especially when you're talking about treating addiction, is like addiction itself does not appear to be one of the risks of these classic psychedelics, the serotonin 2A psychedelics. Mm. And so that's just very clear from every level, scientific level that's relevant. So from the the way these compounds work on dopamine and the mesolimbic, the the so-called brain's reward system, from very reliable animal models of drug self-administration and and other animal models of drug reward, and to epidemiology, especially if you look carefully, Mm. if it's not lumped in with PCP and ketamine and MDMA Mm. and Mm. drugs that do have some addiction potential, even if they're nowhere near cocaine's addiction potential, you know, if you look at the classic psychedelics, it just does not appear to be there. So the science is very strong. So we had to reiterate that. It wasn't easy. 
it took a few rounds of making the argument, but leaned heavily on that older research on on L, on LSD treatment of alcoholism. I, I mean, maybe they thought, thank God, he's not proposing LSD. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is you're absolutely right. There is there is a sense that psilocybin is kind of a little bit under the radar. <laughs> right. It's not LSD, is it? No, of course not. <laughs> And it's easier to use. Right. It fits into a workday. And I like to say one of the advantages of, of psilocybin is that it's uh, is the spelling. It's a little, exactly. a, after 16 years of working with it, I still misspell it every once in a while. I usually use the autocorrect on my on my computer. But um, oh, you have to do that. <laughs> at least it's not spelled L-S-D. Exactly. Because exactly. <laughs> that's the same that, thing that scared the hell out of people. And I wasn't alive then. I was born in the early 70s. But in the late 60s and early 70s, that's what scared the hell out of society. That was the biggie. The legacy, the fear, the fear legacy is actually still something we have to fight with today. And maybe come back to that at the end. But let's get let's stick with you. And uh, so you got permission and you so you basically set up a treatment program. Smokers came in. Tell us what you did. Yeah, so it was a it was a small open label study, first of all, because it was, you know, we were, you know, we were stretching with this. No one had looked at psilocybin for addiction. And so there was a switch from LSD to psilocybin and addiction treatment. And no one with any psychedelic had had studied formally tobacco treatment. So set up a a small, just to test the waters. And because we didn't have like hardly any money, you know, we we didn't have much money. So, um, you know, open label, 15 people made sure to get some um, hardcore smokers, on average, it ended up being about a pack a day. Mm-hmm. They'd been smoking an average of 30 years. So these were not lightweights. And designed this study where there were three sessions. And I kind of looked at the typical survival cor- curve and, mm-hmm. and sprinkled in those sessions at points that seemed like they kind of hit where the action was in those typical survival curves in terms of treating tobacco addiction it, with the first dose starting on the target quit date. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, I was the primary guide in the room with people, both leading this, the cognitive behavioral therapy content, as well as being one of the people there to, to, to help guide them through mm-hmm. the, the psilocybin experience. And uh, it, it took many years to actually run that first study because we had such a little, we were sort of running it on the back burner, like uh-huh. when we had the ability to run. I think, I, I think my earliest copies of, of the protocol might have been back in 2008. Um, 2009, and we finally published our open label pilot in 2014. And but we had an extraordinary success rate. So you know, want to be clear, it was open label, not randomized. So you know, yeah, we can only say so much. We can't say definitively that the psilocybin caused the effects, but it was an 80% biologically success rate at six months. We'll get back to the interview in just a second. I just want to thank all the drug science community members for your continued support. Without you, the dissemination of information like this would not be possible. Drug science is, and always will be, independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. But by becoming a drug science community member, you'll be helping us bring about change. You'll also receive access to exclusive events and will be able to attend all drug science events for free. To see how to become a community member, click on the link in the show notes. Now, where were we? Let's get back to the show. Explain to see one of the strengths of your study was as you said you know in smoking there are these biological measures and just explain to the, the listeners most people won't know what conatine is they won't they won't know how you measure success with smoking so give them a little bit more detail about how you measure good outcome with smoking. 
Right. So there's two measures. Most uh, smoking cessation studies use one of the two. We used both. Since we're using a psychedelic, we thought like, hey, let's let's just go all in, <laughs> you know, convince the skeptics if we are onto something. And one is it's kind of like a breathalyzer. If you get pulled over and the police think you've, you, you drank a little too much, you blow into a machine. Same thing, except instead of alcohol that we're picking up, we're picking up carbon monoxide. So you might know this as, as part of the of the poison that's coming out of your tailpipe of your automobile. Well, if you smoke, it's also coming out of the smoke of the cigarettes and it'll come out of your breath if you've been smoking. So that's a very reliable quantitative measure that um, only goes back about a half a day. So if you quit Mm. smoking for 12 hours, you're going to be at the level of a non-smoker. But then you have another measure that we can pick up with a a urine sample, uh, cotinine. So it's a metabolite of nicotine. It has sort of a complementary time course. It, It won't be detected as immediately as carbon monoxide will, but it has a longer time course of being picked up. Uh, If you smoke a week ago, you can detect it with uh, cotinine. So complementary time course, both pretty cheap to collect and to have analyzed. And that's a real strength, you know, when we're talking about something that is so difficult to quit. Potential placebo effects can be high with psychedelics. You know, it's, it's sort of like the leap of faith effect. One of the other things I liked about the smoking cessation work is we had had a lot of participants in our other studies that were kind of into, you know, alternative therapy, you know, new agey stuff. Not everyone, but it leaned on that side. And the typical smokers we've gotten are just kind of regular folks. Mm-hmm. And, and they say, they say, you know what? I've tried everything but the kitchen sink. And golly, this sounds like the kitchen sink. <laughs> this is the craziest thing. But you know what? It's Johns Hopkins, so I guess it sounds safe. So what the hell? You know, I kind of like that aspect, but the potential expectancy effect is mm. high. So it's really nice to have that biological verification. Mm. These people aren't just whistling Dixie. Their behavior was changed long term. And now we're in the midst of a, of a randomized follow-up study that's looking very um, very good so far. Again, I think the majority of people in this world would think it was bizarre to do psilocybin for smoking, one drug for another, et cetera, et cetera. But, but you've learned a lot from this study and you've learned, I mean, but I want you to, to talk me through some of the, some of the learning. So for instance, I mean, I think I heard you say once that how it works is it, it's people sort of, the ones who benefited, which was the vast majority, they kind of, it changed their thinking about cigarettes. Is that right? You, did you say something like, um, they felt that their, you know, their relationship with cigarettes was then completely fractured. They were, was no longer part of their life. Is that, was that the interpretation? Yeah. And in fact, you know, some of the most that we've collected a lot of outcome measures, some of the most interesting really came from a, a qualitative analysis that mm. we did long term with folks. You know, these are the things you may have not thought to collect in your all of your quantitative scales. And and, and one interesting thing can, you know, connected to research you've done is like people um, pointed to a sense of interconnectedness, mm, you know, mm. that went beyond smoking and really saw their life more as this kind of at the gestalt level, at the big picture level mm, mm. and how smoking really didn't fit. And and there were, I think, idiosyncratic ways that, you know, people described this differently, but really everyone for whom it worked, they seemed to have a story, sort of self-narrative, like what is my story and how does smoking fit into it or more appropriately, like why doesn't it fit? Like, this is why it was part of my story. And this is clearly why it, it doesn't fit. And so, um, you know, I think that that broad perspective is what 
I and see. it's totally consistent with you know different levels of analysis we know biologically and, and, and psychologically that seem to be unfolding with this psychedelic therapy. Mm. I mean, does it, for instance, I mean, does craving disappear, or is it they still crave, but they have more power to overcome it? We do see a reduction in craving, and we'll see if it holds up. But one of the most interesting things is on the questionnaire for smoking urges, one of the the more prominent craving questionnaires in the smoking field, is that we see a a significant reduction in factor two. We're seeing that in the current research compared above and beyond people who successfully quit with nicotine patch. Mm. The second factor of the QSU relates to negative, negative reinforcement or negative affect. It's basically temptation to smoke out of the fear of the bad stuff that's going to keep happening if you don't smoke. It's not the anticipation of positive yep. reward. Yep. It's that which seems substantially better with psilocybin. And I, and I kind of see this more broadly in terms of like they're less likely to get sucked and, and, to, and if they do temporarily get sucked down into this sense of hopelessness. It's like they're stuck in an eddy in a, in a river where they, they, they can't, you know, they haven't achieved escape velocity. That mm-hmm. are, they're mm-hmm. in calculus. They're at a local min. They, they're, they're stuck somewhere. And um, it, it seems like psilocybin is a way to, you know, it's been used a number of times, but it's shaking up the snow globe, the, the analogy. In our depression work, most people have challenging trips. You know, depression is there. It's the, it, it, there are events. There are feelings. Often it's quite a dark place they go to. Do smokers go into somewhere under the psilocybin? Do they go to a, a great room of cigarettes? Or is there anything special about what happens to them when they're having the drug? So we've looked at that, and um, we don't have the sample size yet. Uh, we might, but we in the current, very current sample of the present study that uh, we haven't analyzed yet. But but I, I can tell you anecdotally that there are there are people who have cigarette related content in their mm-hmm. psilocybin sessions. And there are people who it seems like it, and they think it totally helped them quit smoking. There are people that said, I didn't think about cigarettes all day. Mm-hmm. And so we're still figuring it out. My, my impression is that it doesn't depend on nominal, you know, visionary content during mm-hmm. the, the experience. Oh, that can go along for the ride. We have had, you know, accounts of people who, you know, I think of one account of someone who, where she envisioned herself with one cigarette and then sort of she zoomed out and she said, oh, it became like an Andy Warhol piece of art where the kind of like the neon colored picture of myself, which is kind of very psychedelic, you know, mm-hmm. but then I panned out and it wasn't one picture of me with a cigarette. It was like 10 and then it was a hundred and then, it, you know, and then she was at, you know, millions of, of pictures and she realized, and, and this relates to content we went over with the cognitive behavioral therapy before the session. The decision isn't about having this one cigarette or not. The decision is about being a smoker or not. Yes, yes. You know, it's the broader, the yeah. more abstract thing. And that relates to your personal identity, mm. the kind of the molar behavioral patterns that are unfolding in your life. It's not being, it's not the narrow choice. And so mm. that was a case where that, that kind of stuck with her. And clinically, when she brings this up in describing the session, you kind of want her to go with that. Like, oh, that's mean. You want that to kind of stick in her memory. But there are other people that said, mm. you know, I didn't think about cigarettes all day, but they say, I feel like I was reset. I mean, one guy that didn't think much about cigarettes, he said his withdrawal was completely gone. I mean, this isn't really? the norm, but we have had people. I mean, and this guy was a, a was a carpenter. He's the, sort of one of the last people you would think of with as a psychedelic enthusiast. He's he's one of these normal guys. Mm. He talked. In fact, you asked about his session. He's like, oh, it was good. 
no problem. I got through it. You know, he doesn't, you know, kind of wax on. Yeah, about, yeah. But, <laughs> but, you know, smoking a pack a day for, I think for him, it was over 40 years. He said there was no withdrawal. Mm. I mean, which is, just, it, it's, I mean, we'll see if it holds up, but there are cases like that. And there are some other individuals that, that seem to fall in that category where you just really got to sit back and like, you know, it may or may not hold up, but if there's something there, it's extraordinary. It makes me think of the work Damasio and Becerra with the, the insula stroke patients yes, that, yes. that say... Explain that to people, because most people won't. That's a little bit neuroscience for most of our listeners. Right. So this research, oh gosh, and I guess it was uh, about 15 years ago mm. now, where they uh, published it, just remarkable finding with, with people who, who quit smoking, not because they tried, because they had a stroke. And they compared people that had a stroke in a very particular area of the brain, the insula, compared to, you know, control participants who had strokes in other areas. And the people who had a stroke in, in the insula had a remarkable rate of, of just quitting smoking. And, and, and really more than remarkable than just quitting is what they said. One participant uh, put it this way. It's like my body forgot to smoke. They didn't try. Yeah. It was just like irrelevant anymore to them. And so... Yeah, who knows? Very speculative. Is there something here going on like that at a very, you know, with maybe longstanding changes in, in, in brain network activity? Mm-hmm. We don't know yet. We're trying to figure that out in some of the, the current studies where we're doing pre and post fMRI and long-term mm-hmm. fMRI. But yeah, sometimes it seems remarkable at that level. Like, you know, what's going on here? There is a switch somehow and it might be the insulin. Well, that's a really great theory. I mean, You've made me think, though. You've made as I've you've been talking. I've been thinking, maybe we've reconceptualized our depression work a little. Maybe we we've, we've got it slightly wrong. I mean, maybe the fact you can disrupt habitual behaviors in addiction, and no one disputes addiction is very habitual. Most people would say that depression's probably not habitual, although it's recurrent. Maybe we got it wrong. Maybe there is a, a kind of habit in depressive thinking, which is a bit like the sort of habits which underpin addiction. Do you think? Do you think that might be true? That's my that's my bias, and yeah. I realize part of this is philosophy. And and uh, but but I, as a radical behaviorist, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes that term is mischaracterized. It, it doesn't deny the existence of thought. It just assumes that you know you got to be aware of what you can directly observe and what you can't. And the assumption is, and it's an assumption, that thoughts follow the same lawful patterns as overt behaviors. I mean, I subjectively see it in myself when you you think about a certain thing and that leads to another thought that's like aversive, you tend to avoid thinking the thought that prompted it. I mean, these Mm -hmm. are the same patterns that we, there are rewarding thoughts and there are Mm -hmm. punishing thoughts. And, you know, we see it unfold with anxiety disorders where the same sort of stimulus, you know, relationships that you know, set the uh, certain thoughts will set the occasion for contingencies. My assumption is that a disorder like depression, a whole lot has to do it. I think of it as a form of addiction. And again, it's mm-hmm. my, you know, hopefully we can do more testing around it. One of the things I, I, I'm excited about with psychedelics is their ability to, um, and it's something your group has, has, uh, has written about, but th- their potential to really form a transdiagnostic mm-hmm. understanding of of mental disorders and, and beyond. The idea that, and it's in the spirit of folks are familiar with the RDoc perspective from the the U.S. National Institute on Mental Health. The whole idea that 
compared to other areas of, of medicine, that psychiatry is largely descriptive. These different disorders, these labels for different disorders are largely based on a purely descriptive framework and aren't based on mechanisms that drive them. So why would psychedelics work for addiction treatment, not just for one drug, but for a number of drugs, which is weird in itself across mm-hmm. you know, different substances, but then for affective disorders like addiction as well? Maybe psychedelics are pointing us towards a commonality across these things mm. that we think are different disorders. Maybe it's sort of like externalizing versus internalizing. I mean, we know men mm. suffer from addictions more than women, but women suffer from depression more than mm. men. I mean, maybe there's being stuck in a in a habitual thought pattern, you know, self persecutory thoughts, for example, might have more in common with being stuck in a yeah. a pattern of behavior and the thoughts that go along with addiction mm. that I think are part of that big picture. Like what you come to learn about yourself is like, I'm just a smoker. I've tried 30 times and I can't quit, damn it. I'm just, I can't do it. Like I'm a smoker, just face it. It's a sort of defeatist, depressive type of cognitive framing. Yeah, I see. Yeah, interesting. I think you had three didn't respond in your first trial. Is that right? Was it three or four? Right, right. Any insights as to why that might be? One of them, I'm drawing from small samples, so this is all speculative. One of them didn't have a very meaningful, uh, really any meaningful sessions. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they were just kind of bizarre and and fun. He was a great guy. I really love, I mean, I liked all these participants. Um, You got to know them pretty well, I guess. It was 18 weeks, wasn't it? (laughs) Weekly therapy. (laughs) Right. And uh, I tried to play as good of a therapist, a clinician as I could. And, um, really getting to know and, and liking these people. And, and, and this guy I'm thinking of had, uh, just, he said, you know, the, the biggest thing about this session was, you know, the cartoon with the, with the chicken and the chicken hawk. And I said, what? Oh, foghorn leghorn, you know, like the, the character, you know, it mm-hmm. says, I say, I say, boy, it's old, uh, mm-hmm. Looney Tunes cartoon. He said it was like that character and some other characters and kind of a dust bowl, you know, a desert environment, you know, absurd, you know, it didn't seem to have anything to do with his life. It wasn't meaningful. You know, sometimes you have what might be dud sessions, which is why I think multiple sessions mm. helps. And in fact, we had people that had sort of a dud session in terms of its content for the first session. And then in their second session, mm. and for some people, they said it was the most meaningful experience of their life. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, as one of the fascinating things is giving a high dose of a psychedelic environment, right environment is like turning up the gain on this potential of having a highly meaningful mm. experience, but it's not guaranteed. It's like, what were the chances that you would have had the most meaningful experience of your life on that particular Tuesday? Probably essentially zero, zero yeah, had you probably. not had a big dose of psilocybin in that environment, but it's not a hundred percent. So there's a slot machine effect. There's a lottery effect. And so by having, you know, two sessions is probably better than one. And my, my inclination is that it's not like these sessions, their, their effect averages out, like one dud session weighs down the, the meaningful session you have two weeks later. Mm. It's probably that the, the most meaningful session carries the day. And in, in clinical practice, you could just keep giving sessions until you hit one that works. Yes. And do you do, I mean, with, in depression, we do quite a lot of uh, integration work. But do, do you need to do that with the smoking? Yeah, well, we didn't test it with and without, so we definitely yeah. had the integration work. My impression is, yes, my impression with all of this stuff is that the integration is key. Mm. You know, it's been called the afterglow or the golden window and the for 
you know, for, I mean, even the literature back in the 60s would, would describe this phenomenon. We don't know anything about it mechanistically. My best guess is that some of the, the, the non-human work suggesting neuroplastic effects mm-hmm. biologically, I think that is essentially the afterglow. I think there's a state of increased mm. mental flexibility, which has a very real, you know, measurable biological correlate. And and that if you do good therapy, probably probably any therapy that we know works during that time. And if you simply just discuss, like just even like having the person continue talking about a quit attempt, talk about their session, try to connect them. That's probably helping to cement while this thing is still in a plastic state. Yep. yep. It's helping to reestablish the new normal that's probably going to be reestablished. So my impression is that it's it's critical for any of this, this these disorders, this integration, which is a fancy way of just saying at least discuss the experience yes. and the therapeutic yeah. endpoint afterwards. So now you're doing a double-blind study. Tell us about that. So the current study is a – you can call it a comparative efficacy study. So it, it's – it's the way most psychotherapies are are compared, are analyzed. So it's not double blind. I want to do that in the next. In fact, I have a an NIH grant that's that's been submitted and uh-huh. got a score, and so I'm re- resubmitting it. Um, it wasn't killed, so that's a good sign. Um, but the current study is randomizing people to one psilocybin session. We scaled back to one more for experimental reason because we're doing the pre post fMRI, and so it's a cleaner uh-huh. analysis that way. Clinically, I think multiple sessions, as I just said, is probably the better way to go. But um, comparing, you know, randomizing people to quitting with psilocybin versus quitting with nicotine patch, something that we know works, works better than placebo. But again, most people, it's not successful with long term. Mm-hmm. And, and both with the same cognitive behavioral therapy of the sort we've been using. And so far, because it's open label randomized, you know, I always know what the current results are. Right now, 43 people, it's 80 people total, 40 in each Wow, group. that's a big study. Yeah. Right. And right now, 43 people have gotten to the one-year follow-up. Over 50 have, have been administered active treatment. So out of the 43 people that for whom it's been a year, 57% are biologically confirmed point prevalent abstinence at one year versus 27 with nicotine patch. So it's still wow. looking incredibly effective. I mean, the best treatment that's ever been published outside of psilocybin for smoking cessation is the work, as far as I know, that Sharon Hall has published where she used multiple medications and then essentially continued cognitive behavioral therapy for an entire year on a regular basis. I mean, which is a real sledgehammer. Mm -hmm. And she got in sort of the mid-50s. And we're getting that with a far more, Mm. so far, with a far more temporally limited, you know, intervention. Exciting, exciting, yeah. It could change. You know, it's in process. And and I really do, you know, the next step needs to be a double-blind study. I I think more comparative, and I believe your group is doing this with depression. I I think sort of just randomizing people to, Mm. you know, standard course of, for example, SSRIs versus, you know, psilocybin intervention. Um, Although you might be combining that with the blind too. I I, I don't know. We do have a blind as well, yeah. It's quite complicated to get the blind though, as you know. Yeah, with double dummy (laughs) procedures. So we we went with the straight up, didn't use any double dummy or, or, or anything with this. But um, I think in a lot of ways you get the best information from these types of studies where like, how does it compare on the ground to what's typically used? 
clearly we need to know it's not all placebo effects. So you need the double blind studies. We, and we know at this point there's a real pharmacology, but we need to continue for regulatory reasons and otherwise. You need to get the best scientific answers from triangulating these different methods. Exactly. But I think you do what we're going to see in real clinical practice with psychedelics, if it's approved, is both pure pharmacology and the placebo effect. And I think there's actually something special about psychedelics. Whatever the hell it is that we call placebo effect is something pretty amazing that we mm. know virtually nothing about. I think sick. I think of psychedelics as placebos on rocket boosters. <laughs> Whatever that is, psychedelics seem to tap into. And so, what you're going to get in real clinical, you know, response is both the the pharmacology with the placebo effect. So, what does it look like on the ground? compared to a standard treatment. Um, so that's what we're doing now. I remember one of our subjects in the first resistant depression trial, he said cytosabin was like ingesting a good therapist. <laughs> it's always there with you. I mean, I think it prompts therapeutic processes. Yes, exactly. And some of this, and, 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 and I think this is what's going on in people who quit substance use outside of therapy with the psychedelic. I've published a number of studies, be it from surveys, whether it be smoking, alcohol, cocaine, methamphetamine, even cannabis. We've published on all of these, these stories of people that said, typically, like they're just taking, taking acid or shrooms at a party, yeah. you know, for fun or for ex exploration. And they have this like huge mm. experience and they ask themselves, what the hell am I doing? And they say that was the last time they ever drank yeah. or smoked. So I think the things that we shoot for in therapy you know, not with typically psychiatric medications, but in in therapy, having someone you know, view their life from a broad perspective, having someone like put focus on what they prioritize in life, assess their own values. These things are kind of brought to the fore, even if there's no therapist involved. Yeah. And do you think that people need to be abstinent? I mean, uh, or uh, I, I think in your, your, your smoking, you, they were trying to achieve abstinence, weren't they? So you... I'm just thinking about the broader use of psilocybin in addiction. I mean, should we aim for abstinence before we start treating or should we just sort of take it as it comes, as what, what people present? My best guess is that, and I'm also drawing from what we know about treatments of other addictions, my best guess is that for drugs that are highly intoxicating or highly life-destructive, that, yeah, it's best to clean the person out for a week or something through whatever mechanisms you can't, you know, you got the money to do it, keep them in an inpatient ward or, you know, use contingencies, what, what have you. But for something like smoking, you know, tobacco smoking, where it's not causing this ongoing destruction of your life and it's not overtly toxicating, whatever we're doing seems to be working. But hmm. I, I, my guess is that for you know, alcohol and, and opioids, et cetera, that, um, probably best to clean the person up for some length of time. Mm. And ultimately we need to wrap experiments around all of this, like compare, mm, yeah, you know, you know, giving it, you know, you could use up to the quit date, you know, compare it to like having a week of abstinence, two weeks of abstinence and see what happens. It's a good job. You've got a few years ahead of you. That's a lot of work. <laughs> right. And, and it's those types of parameters that I think the entire field is experiencing this. There's yeah. so many questions like, well, do you need music in the treatment? You yeah. know, what would happen if you if you use this other, you know, psychotherapy rather than CBT yeah. or what? And it's like, those are all good empirical questions. And so, and because we've had this limited funding, you know, you're only going after right now the biggies, you know, the big, yeah. you don't have the luxury of exploring parameters. You know, here's, we're randomizing people to one session versus two sessions versus three sessions, but we'll get there yes. and we need to get there. 
Yeah, well, we'll get there. Hopefully, when at least one of them is licensed, and it becomes a lot easier to work with them because it's still extraordinarily tedious and bureaucratic and expensive to to work right. with these Schedule One drugs, isn't it? It's incredible, and it's. Uh, I do research with other drugs, including cocaine and methamphetamine, and it just it is absurd. I can you know, tell you from my you know mm-hmm. you know for the work I've done in the U.S. It's 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 harder to deal with <laughs> with psilocybin to get psilocybin than it is you know, methamphetamine yeah. and cocaine. I have to have a special special safe for my psilocybin, but I can put my heroin in the pharmacy. <laughs> uh, why is that? Because psilocybin is very dangerous. Schedule one. Anyway, let's not talk about the absurdities of regulations. Let me, I've got a couple more questions, if you don't mind, before we finish. Um, Great. Do you have any views about Ibogaine? I mean, there's obviously there's a lot of talk, sort of non-scientific exploration of Ibogaine as an anti-addiction, anti-opiate treatment. I mean, have you had any experience or any views on it? I guess the, in the biggest picture, my bets are on the classic psychedelics, like psilocybin or LSD. And and one of the most important things is that toxicity of ibogaine, the cardiac toxicity, mm. the the QT interval prolongation, which is, you know, on a short list of things that if you're developing a novel, you know, pharmaceutical, mm. like you avoid. And a typical company will not... In, they try to identify that early on and not throw millions of dollars into a drug that mm. screws with your QT interval because of the cardiac uh, potential, you know, the, the toxicity. And p- some people have died, you know, whether that is uh, you could eventually control that and identify the people that are susceptible. I don't know. You know, I would leave that. I would have more confidence in, in cardiologists and toxicologists that really look into mm. it. My mm. best impression is that it's not a good direct bet for FDA approval or approval, you know, in the in the international equivalents of drug regulatory agencies. I I uh, I don't think it's going to go anywhere for that reason. And my best bet, and it's speculation, is that the heavy hitter that you get in ibogaine is similar to what you get with psilocybin and LSD. I think you have multiple things going on. It is amazing that rodents will stop pressing levers to get cocaine and opioid injections. And there's that normalization in mesolimbic dopamine response that probably not because of subjective experience. It seems to be the short-term biologically mediated Mm -hmm. thing. But ultimately, I think overcoming short-term withdrawal is not... If if that was the key to overcoming addiction, we would have solved addiction 50 years ago when you put people asleep in a coma, in an induced coma for several weeks, or you, you send them to PubMed for a month to get past the withdrawal. And you name the drug and plenty of people relapse after, Mm. you know, the withdrawal phase is over. Mm. And we don't know that psilocybin and LSD don't have a similar response in the mesolimbic. And, you know, perhaps this is, you know, was, you know, similar to the emerging work uh, suggesting neuroplasticity in animals. So, um, Given just the off-the-charts physiological safety of LSD and psilocybin, my my bets are with the classic psychedelics. Mm. But I'm all for people, you know, exploring, you know, if they get it approved and under safe conditions and like following the process and exploring ibogaine. Finally, I just wanted, we're going through COVID-19. There's a lot of very traumatized people, particularly healthcare professionals who've seen things in hospitals that they never thought they'd see. You know, it's kind of almost like it's a war zone. So... They're coming out like the old, you know, military vets, really. And um, I wonder, what do you think about psychedelic or for PTSD? I think there's a lot of potential. In fact, that's one of our. Um, I'm 
I'm the principal investigator of a, of a study that's going to be looking at that. Okay. We have funding for it. It was part of our, our center level funding we obtained in the fall. We haven't done the study yet. You know, the first study that I've, uh, I'm right about now submitting to the I, to the IRB, to the ethics board is the treatment of opioid addiction, but kind of a little bit later phased into our plans and our funding is the PTSD work have a draft of that protocol. And I think it's very promising. Obviously, the work with MDMA treating PTSD is very promising. MDMA are, and psilocybin aren't the same drug, but uh, they sh- certainly have some similarities. And I've been told by underground therapists that they think done well, that the classic psychedelics are even better than MDMA. But in, in thinking about your theory, um, it would be that the, 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 the MDMA therapy for PTSD is a sort of classic extinction you know, basically, you use the MDMA to allow people to re-engage with the memory and extinguish the the emotion. Whereas psychedelics would be different. I mean, and I just wondered what you thought. Do you think they might be... Dis- I mean, the memories, the recurrent memories might, again, be habitual behaviours like, you know, like smoking or, you know, taking drugs or, you know, would that, would that be your conceptualization of what might, how it might work, disrupting that repeated, repetitive thinking? Right, I, I, I think so. I, I think so, and... and- you know, there's different models with which one can look at it and they may not be mutually exclusive and they might be different ways of saying the same thing. But, mm. you know, I think the, the certainly the cognitive flexibility, which is one way of thinking about these effects, you know, having the ability to to step outside of these circumstances and have a broad scale reframing mm-hmm. of that, you know, so, so often it's the self blame. Why did I survive? And my buddy mm-hmm. did not, mm-hmm. you know, did I cause the somehow the sexual assault, like all of these things that people bury themselves with. My impression is that people, and I think this would be the same for classic psychedelics as well as MDMA, people can step outside of that and see themselves the way that they would see another person. Mm -hmm. If this was another person, they'd probably look and say, my God, obviously this was not your fault. And look what you've done. Mm -hmm. Look at how resilient you have been. Mm -hmm. And just like to actually view themselves from that perspective, from this you know, shaking the snow globe up. And and who knows, there might be something with, uh, I mean, uh, my colleague Fred Barrett has showed some longstanding uh, uh, changes in, in, in amygdala sensitivity yeah, could, could with be. psilocybin. Yeah. You know, maybe it could fold out in the weeks following psilocybin administration where just reestablishing the new normal, maybe in a similar way to MDMA, you know, kind of removing that overreaction, mm-hmm. that hair trigger response, that traumatic response that the amygdala is involved with. Okay, Matt, well, I hope your ethics committee will approve of that uh, rationale then. <laughs> I hope so too, yeah. We're, we're going to be very cautious with it. Yeah, the bad trip is something to be particularly concerned about. With well, of course, that's, that, is the, that is the great fear hanging over us with, with something as people as traumatized as PTSD. Well, look, we'll uh, look forward to you progressing it and uh, stay in touch. It's been an absolute delight to talk to you and uh, thank you for sharing your both your you know knowledge and your wisdom and uh, good luck with the rest of your research and your career thanks david it's been a real pleasure thank you very much take care thank you bye-bye well i hope you enjoyed that it's really quite remarkable isn't it that you can use a, a, a drug like psilocybin to deal with something as complex and habitual as smoking and I think uh, what you've heard today is uh, probably the start of what will be many different trials of psychedelics, particularly psilocybin in addictions. And uh, I think perhaps in 10 years' time, the whole 
landscape for treating these difficult disorders will be changed. And, and Matt Johnson will be one of the people that has really enabled this change. Thank you for listening. And uh, if you want to join the community of drug science, go onto the website and, uh, and feel free to sign up because the drug science community is what keeps drug science telling the truth about drugs. Thank you. Thank you.